This week's episode is brought to you by Lovers of the Unique Resin Crafts. With a wide range of products from home decor, pride merchandise, and a growing selection of Warhammer-themed shot glasses, Lovers of the Unique Resin Craft has a little something for everyone. Use the link in the description below. Hello and welcome to Geeks of Grimdark, your home for everything Warhammer, be they elves or Eldar, space marines or stormcast, we've got you covered. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... Shield Brother, Axel Wright. How goes it? Goes okay. I actually managed to get some time to build the other day, and I am almost done with my Seraphim box, so that makes me happy. I still have like three more unopened boxes I gotta get to, but I'm having such a hard time finding any time to work on models lately, but with still doing stuff in the house and and whatnot and now i live like half an hour to 40 minutes so well like half an hour and change away from my work so it just cuts an extra like hour out of my day now and anyway i don't mean to go off on the tangent but you asked me how are you doing um pretty good i mean we're starting to get actual spring weather here which means we can venture outside the house for all Uh that matters in the pandemic true i've been I managed to get out a couple times. I went to this place called Pojo's the other day. That's basically like a kind of an indoor family fun center kind of thing. Not too big. And I went and saw Godzilla vs. Kong this last weekend. I'm sure that you and I will talk about that with a, another friend of ours soon. But so I've got I've got a couple out outings safely, of course. Yeah. No, I'm waiting for the full return to normal. But in the meantime, make do with what you got. Correct. And I also have my vaccine shot scheduled for tomorrow. So, you know, good news. (laughs) All right. Getting moving along. I got my second one coming up here. Well, by the time this releases, I'll have had my second one and I'll be immortal. That's how this works, right? Mm, Of course. Anyway, darkness of reality put aside so we can get to the grim darkness of our pastime. But before that, I believe we have a patron sound off. Yeah, these are the people that liked us so much, they gave us money to keep doing it. They are Pam Galley, Marky, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, Seth Decker, Jesse Johnston, and Donald Lucy. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion and have your name read off at the beginning of every podcast, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Geeks with Shields. 25 cents an episode gets you early access to all our content, and a little bit more gets even more great benefits. So, while Geeks of Shields may be the moniker under which we do all our things, as you've seen from the title, this is a Geeks of Grimdark, and as with every episode of Geeks of Grimdark, we have a guest. Feel free to introduce yourself. Hello there, I'm Loremaster of Sotek. I believe I've been around here a couple times before, but I am one of the apparent uh, leading authority figures or some nonsense when it comes to uh, Warhammer Fantasy lore and the massive uh, mess that that thing tends to be. But uh, yeah, happy to be here. I believe I once referred to him as the Vati Vidya of Warmaster of Warhammer, so which I think he took as a compliment. Yeah, that's always a badge I would wear with immense pride. Yes, and we've had uh, Sotek on twice before talking about the essentially the general setting of Warhammer, because as anyone who's listened to us know, we're usually a 40k podcast at, at Greece of Grimdark. That's only because Ulrich and I are primarily 40k players, but... There is a fantasy side of it, Warhammer Fantasy, and Sotek was our foray into such a thing. But now that we've gotten past the, I guess, general setting, I believe that our agenda today involves a much more specific conversation detailing a 
let's go with divide in the Warhammer fantasy <laughs> hobby itself, right? Yeah, that's uh, divides one word for it. Well, because it literally has a time element where like there was a there was a a community and a hobby, and then a thing happened, and then there was a community, two communities and two hobbies that are kind of the same hobby but not the same afterward. Anyway, I'm being very vague on purpose, but let's let me let me get over that and uh, Ulrich, go ahead or Sotek, go ahead. Whichever one of you wants to introduce this idea. <laughs> I'll tell, I'll take the bullet here because Sotek's our guest and we want our people to like him. We're talking about that fun, fun event called the End Times. The thing which, if you spend any time dealing with any form of Warhammer fantasy people, you will hear about used, not in the best terms. And as someone that was on the outside of it when it was happening, I'm going to let it go over to Sotek. And Sotek can explain to us all what the End Times were. <laughs> I was about to say, wow, you knew some fantasy people that didn't hate the end times? Those are so rare. Um, so, oh gosh, where do you even start? The end times, uh, the, the long story short was that basically Games Workshop reached a point where they felt fantasy was no longer viable as a setting. So Sorry, they may I interrupt you for just a, just a moment? Sure, if, go ahead. If anyone's listening who is say, like us, it's more of a 40K person, or if you're listening just because you like the sound of our dulcet tones. So, as we established before, there is Warhammer 40K, there is slash was Warhammer Fantasy, and there's a thing called Age of Sigmar. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Sotek, but isn't the end times essentially the narrative reason why Games Workshop, quote-unquote, retired the game that was Warhammer Fantasy in order to boot the game known as Age of Sigmar? Yes, I, I would say it is more accurate to describe the end times as a launch point for Age of Sigmar than it was the end of fantasy, which was one of its major flaws. And we'll get into that a little later. Um, but th that is accurate. A Age of Sigmar is the is the descendant that crawled from fantasy's corpse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, so th that's that's. And that, that, that is a major reason why it kind of has a sour reputation in the heart of, I think, uh, many, many fantasy fans is due to that association, which is unfortunate because that actually caused Age of Sigmar a lot of grief in its first few years. Yeah, I just wanted, I wanted to give that I wanted to give that background because I know for for me, for instance, I wasn't aware that there was a distinction at first. And I know some people that I've got into the hobby were not aware that warhammer fantasy was a separate thing either so i was just trying to you know set the table for you as it were <laughs> yeah technically age of sigmar and fantasy take place in the same setting it's just that um age of sigmar is somewhere between like hundreds of thousands to millions of years after warhammer fantasy um it gets a little wobbly exactly what the time scale is between the two but it was long enough for like a whole separate number of realities to come into existence from literal space dust. So it probably probably took a while. All right. Well, you were before I before I rudely interrupted you. You were beginning this talk about it. It sounded like Games Workshop's motivation for whatever the end times is. So right there. <laughs> so yeah, the the kind of the big thing was that Games Workshop in the late the kind of like 2010 ish ballpark. Uh, maybe a little bit before that, they kind of hit this point where they were struggling to make as much money as they wanted to. And uh, it kind of ran into a lot of 
um, issues due to um, the way they were running their business. And so one of the ways they decided to try and fix this issue was that essentially someone at Games Workshop looked at fantasy and said, okay, this isn't selling as much as 40K. Maybe um, that's because it doesn't have space marines. So the way we fix this is we put space marines in fantasy. But which the way are we... Stormcast Eternals? Yes, right? which are Stormcast Eternal. So okay. the that was the initial drive, was to kill off fantasy and try and bring it back under a new IP that had similar names, um, you know, where you have, like, Sigmar was kind of one of the preeminent gods of Warhammer Fantasy, and now he was the pre like the big god of Age of Sigmar, hence the name of it. And they hoped that by creating a space marine faction for a fantasy setting, that it would have the exact same results. Um, which spoilers it didn't. <laughs> yeah, good question on that. Uh, it sounds like to me, well, maybe this is a dumb question, but why wouldn't they just have? introduce the new faction to the already existent setting i feel like you could do that narratively without upending the entire thing so that's a great question and um the reason is there's a couple reasons the the first is that games workshop did not like the way fantasy had been designed because fantasy was very difficult to copyright and to yeah, have very enforceable of, uh... copyright yeah it was all oh is that Tolkien? And that's, well, that's, stuff. that's like the same stuff, like why they use the word Eldari and Astartes now, yes. right? Um, they they copyrighted everything because they couldn't uh, copyright generic terms. Yeah, and fantasy was particularly problematic because the original designers of Warhammer Fantasy wanted to create a... This is actually kind of a fun um, history lesson about them, but... War, so Warhammer Fantasy is the OG, right? It's, it's the grandpappy of the entire Games Workshop company. You know, 40K came a little ways later. And the idea behind fantasy was that the original creators wanted to create a historical game. Um, they actually didn't care about fantasy very much. However, they felt that fantasy was the only thing that would sell a historical game in the 80s because it just wasn't a popular medium at the time. So they decided to take all of these different historical things that they liked and just kind of randomly assign some super generic fantasy tropes to them in order to make it a fantasy game. But it was ultimately a historical game, which is a major part of fantasy's lifeblood and actually is what makes Warhammer Fantasy one of my favorite settings, or my favorite setting, and I think a lot of people's favorite setting, is that it's not just a fantasy game. It is a fantasy game that takes Earth's history and transforms a lot of the most famous cultures in certain geographic regions into fantasy races and puts them all up against each other in never-ending warfare, and it's just fantastic. Um, however, from a copyright perspective, that got them in a really bad position. You cannot copyright Tolkien uh, slash, like, Norse mythology elves. You cannot... You cannot copyright Atlantean Roman elves that are very heavily based on Tolkien ideas. You cannot um, do that with dwarfs based very heavily on Tolkien ideas. You also can't do that with a lot of the uh, early uh, chaos designs that were very heavily derived from a different fantasy author. You can't do that with uh, tomb kings, which are just undead Egyptians. The ideas are oh. so generic 
and not not in that they're not original when you get into the nitty gritty, but that they represent ideas that anybody can make and Games Workshop could not effectively go after them. Yeah, because they had a big lawsuit right before this, didn't they? Where they tried to fight to get these things. Like, they tried to copyright Space Marine 2. And they were like, no, you can't copyright something that generic. You got to be more specific. Yeah, and... You know what's funny? When when I think about... Sorry, I was going to say, when I think about the terms, most of them I'm on board with. Like, I love the word Astartes. I think it's such a cool word. I like all the... There are ones that don't work for me. Like, they can call it the Militarm all they want. You're in the guard, son. But, (laughs) so... You know, it depends on, it's very hit and miss for me, but it sounds like, not to get ahead of you, it sounds like you've got at least two problems. You've got this copyright problem and this, we want to add a whole new faction and you could solve, they might be, they were thinking that you could solve both these problems and probably other ones you're going to share with this one solution of uh, like a, a whole new setting slash game, right? Essentially. And well, and you have to remember that from their perspective, um, one of the issues with Warhammer Fantasy is because it was based on actual Earth and it's a single planet um, with like very detailed geography and countries and cities and all this stuff. Games Workshop felt that they could not move the narrative because if somebody blew up a state or a country or something, they would basically eradicate that race entirely. Or if Chaos had, like, a major victory somewhere, it would be like, okay, well, I guess we just delete that faction from the game. Which, that's not honestly true, but that's how they felt about it. As a, that they could not move the setting at all. As a quick side note, because when you first mentioned this, I think you've mentioned this idea before, I took it as something... I think lighter than what you meant it. Like from what you're telling me now, based on the original developers, this is actually a lot more ingrained into it than I had guessed. So if, if possible, could you give a brief breakdown of like the Warhammer fantasy factions to whatever real world culture they're connected to? Cause I find that very fascinating. Uh, that- yeah, sure. Um, I, so um, you'll get some differing opinions. I'm sure you know how history nerds are. <laughs> um, you put like have, five have of them in a room and yeah, you put five people in a room and ask them like, Hey, what's this article of armor from? And they'll just like go at each other endlessly. Um, <laughs> so they're, uh, they're kind of the worst. Love you guys, but you're kind of the worst, but oh, yeah, in no. any event, so take this with uh, a grain of my opinion based on what I understand about history, which is not as much as many people, but, uh, generally the laydown is this, um, the Wood Elves in Athel Lauren are very heavily based on um, people from like the um, Norwegian Peninsula, that kind of that ancient Norse mythology where you have like the wild hunt and you have all these like nature deities and they're like very Iceland, the Faroe Islands, yeah, uh, yeah, Denmark stuff like that. Yeah, and they they have a lot of etherealness to them, and they have all these wild spirits, but the nature of their wild spirits are that they're almost, you know, they're the fae, they're all tricksters, and you don't want to draw their attention, because although they're amazing magical creatures, they're also exceedingly dangerous, and they have very bizarre, hard-to-understand rules. So those are your wood elves. The high elves are based on Greek and Roman history, um, they are essentially Atlantis. They have Greek and Roman themes and uh, strategies and armor. Um, they also, when their pantheon was finally fully fleshed out, they have the Greek and Roman pantheon. Um, uh, it's just in that all of their gods 
are much more of like a true pantheon and almost have direct mirrors where you have like Hephaestus is the crippled smith god, Vol is the crippled smith god, um, you have an asshole god of war in Ares, you have an asshole god of war in Cain. Um, a lot of them, a lot of them are kind of direct one to ones. Um, not entirely. They are much more. The high elf gods tend to be a little bit more noble because they're based on elves, not humans. So, like the king of the gods the being Ashurin. Ashurin is kind of a dick, and that he really doesn't like to get involved after a certain point. But he's not like a crazy rapist like Zeus was. Um, <laughs> But like they had the whole battle against the Titans, where a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, Elven gods, who are what are called the Underworld gods, the Sithi or the Sithari, um, they were, most of them were born to I think it was Elenil, the god of destruction, and he had a lot of kids, and he kept killing his own kids. So he's you know Kronos oh, in a sense, and they all betrayed him, and there was a big fight and all this crap. So um, the Dark Elves, uh, because the game was created by Brits. Um, the Dark Elves are a very cheeky um, reference to American hist- uh, imperial history, where they are a very uh, hedonistic, brutal culture that um, everyone is constantly trying to get over each other, and it's capitalism run wild, and they're hardcore into slavery, and just they have these giant floating fortresses that dominate other parts of the world, and they're just the worst. I am an American who is not at all offended by this. <laughs> I mean, I'm also a fan uh, of Star Trek, and the Ferengi are basically the same kind of deal, and I love them, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Lizardmen are very obviously based on ancient Aztec and Mayan culture, spiced up with all of the crazy mythos that people created about them later in life. Um, they also get to be archangels, essentially, from what you told us. So, <laughs> uh, in, in Age of Sigmar, they are. Well, yeah, yeah, they kind of are. Yeah, but you know, they're they're that ancient, the true ancient uh, proto civilization. The dwarves are not really based so much on a historical nation. They are Tolkien's elves, um, sped to a certain angle to make them more fitting for a darker universe, and that they are much more concerned with grudges and vengeance and stuff. But from a cultural perspective. Their history um, that is actually very heavily based on lower class, blue collar, lower class uh, English, Scottish, and Irish workers. So they're the people that worked in the Hell. mines and in oil fields and all that stuff. They are literally um, the way the the writers in the eighties interpreted the people that the gruff people that would go to the bar every day, covered in you know, all sorts of nastiness and they'd have their long beers and just grumble about how everything sucks <laughs> nowadays. And it was always back, it was always better back in the old days with their grandfather, their great grandfather and all that stuff. Um, of course. Remember this setting is a satire folks. Yeah. It, yeah. Get, it's very satirical. All satirical tongue in cheek. Um, yes. Uh, especially because uh, in the eighties in particular, a lot of design philosophies in the eighties, um, this is actually a big thing about 40 K that is not, well-remembered, unfortunately, by many fans, is that many of the main characters in fantasy are deliberate, or not fantasy, uh, Games Workshop IPs were deliberately created to be things that the creators hated and they were making fun of, which is why the Imperium is like such a crazy fascist, super uh, mess of Org and I I have had an episode where we talked about how as much as we love Warhammer 40k, neither one of us 
you know, want to emulate the Imperium. Yeah, <laughs> You're no, not supposed to evil. take it like, seriously. Yeah, there's, there's no way around that. this is to be taken seriously. This is yeah. all a big joke. Yeah, uh, but continuing on, the Empire, which is one of my favorites uh, as far as historical is concerned, just because they actually did a surprisingly good job and it's quite humorous, is that the Empire is based on the Holy Roman Empire. Um, in that, you know, you have all of these, uh, Germanic, Germanic nations that just cannot behave themselves hmm. and are constantly just slapping each other in the face, um, united under, uh, an emperor sometimes. I think Games Workshop has a, a very strong opinion about the nature of empires at this point. <laughs> oh yeah. Bretonia is based on France, but they, to make it spiced up a little more, it's also Arthurian legend. So they literally just took King Arthur and his court and said, what if we made them the most obnoxious, snobby Frenchmen in the universe? <laughs> while also keeping all the Arthurian legends. And that's Bretonia. Well, you the know, name like Bretonia makes sense. Yeah, with uh, Estalia. Estalia is very easily, it's very simply Spain. But it's, it's Spain during an era of all these kings who basically really disagree with one another. It's all of these kind of... Um, um, low to mid-tier kingdoms that are very separated by lots of mountains and uh, hostile terrain and they hate each other and they're almost constantly embroiled in civil wars any factions based on something further east uh yeah you've got Cathay which is uh Grand Cathay which is based on the Chinese empire um they were united uh very very early on in the world's history under the mysterious uh celestial dragon emperor who mm. uh, rules over them, supposedly. Uh, he is very well liked by his people, but uh, Cathay does have some weirdness that goes on. They have a problem with Zinchi and cults popping up in a lot of their cities. Ah, but uh, the Celestial Dragon Emperor rules from the capital of Weijin, um, and they have a lot of very stereotypical uh, Western interpretations of the Far East. They're very mysterious. Mm. Uh, there's a Silk Road and an Ivory Road, and... Um, Cathay is very is known for having all these like um, crazy mythical monsters like stone guardians and um, uh, the dragon emperor himself. Although whenever advisors or diplomats meet him, he appears as a man. It's very heavily believed that he's in fact an actual dragon, but a, a Eastern dragon. So the serpent yeah. type ones without wings. Divinity of the emperor. But mm. he can turn himself into a man. We know that uh, Cathay is very, very powerful magically, uh, and they have a large empire, but of course they have a lot of problems with invasions from the Kurgan, which the Kurgan are easily probably the most frightening of the chaos cults. The Kurgan are kind of um, interpreted based around, uh, which the Norskins and the Kurgan are very much Viking culture, but turned up heavy metal to 11 Nah. Kind of got like Mongolian back during the times of Attila the Hun and uh, Norse when they were like the hardcore Vikings. History. Yeah, you know, you got all these super spooky guys who are known for being like the most hardcore raiders um, as worshippers of the blood god and chaos and all this stuff running around causing a mess. Um, and like even Cathay has the the Great Wall, so like the it's called, but it's called the Great Bastion in fantasy, ah, of and it's literally just a giant wall that was built to keep out the Kurgan. The Chaos Dwarfs, many people are big fans of the Chaos Dwarves that live out in the Darklands, which the Darklands are kind of like, you can kind of, they're, they're kind of like, I guess it would technically be the equivalent of the Middle East, but not a lot of people live there because it's like, it's like a really scary, uh, arid plain with a lot it's of nasty odd, monsters and stuff. 
It's a little odd considering that the Middle East is uh, a lot of times the focal point of a lot of human history, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah, well, the Chaos Dwarves are uh, based on Babylonian history and myth. Ah. So they're, they're, they're Babylon. But they're, you know, they're an ancient culture, but they fell to some pretty nasty uh, decisions and desperation now worship a terrifying god named Hashet. Meanwhile, down in... Um, do they have a Gilgamesh? They do not have a... Well, not really, no. They don't have a Gilgamesh. I think they, they do not have... The, they did not uh, inherit that particular legend. But, uh, it's just too bad. I always love any excuse to bring it up. <laughs> Down in the Southlands, of course, a lot of the lizardmen once again kind of step up to represent a lot of the more like ancient tribal cultures. But there's also Araby. Araby is very heavily based on Muslim mythology, but it, it's very heavily derived from the um, a thousand uh, uh, the Arabian Nights story. Shirazadi in the Thousand Arabian Nights. Yeah, where you have like genies and jinns and all these crazy, you know, flying carpets. And but once again, it's very stereotype, stereotyped by the Western authors. Um, Araby is definitely one of those ones that would probably. I I would love to see them come to Total War, but they would definitely need to be updated a little bit. Uh, Mm. Yeah, there's a reason Games Workshop is kind of like we don't talk about Araby anymore. Just go stand next to the pygmies. Yeah, they they did have a lot of cool things. Some of the stuff was like, oh, okay, a Latin reference, cool. But uh, some of the things were cool. You know, they had elephant cavalry. They had, uh, they had. Uh, my favorite were the camel knights. The camel knights were very, very nasty in a game that uh, you could play called War Master, um, which was more, much smaller miniatures, but you were able to play your games at a much larger scale because of that. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much everyone. You have Talea, who is based on Italy. But it's closer to being Rome. There was even a character called Curious Geezer um, instead of Julius Caesar, um, who was um, like, who tried to declare himself grant like the grand ruler of Talia and got stabbed by everybody. Um, of course, the, uh, the 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 crypt ones are probably Egypt. So yeah, the tomb straight, kings. Right? Yeah, the tomb kings are Egyptians. The vampire counts are based on um, you know the myths of Count Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, and like Eastern, far Eastern Europe, where everything's kind of mysterious and superstitious, and lots of like unquiet spirits. Um, and Vlad the Impaler, of course, has a massive impact on the, the way they develop the vampire count. Anyway, thank thank you for the divergence. I yeah, find they're all over. The I love history kind of stuff. But uh, to bring us back to the the end times, so we've talked a bit about the motivation behind it. We've talked a bit about the effect of it, but I don't think we've actually talked about what it is as itself yet yeah so um the end times was essentially a so what happened was in so for anyone that's familiar with warhammer warhammer 40k um the settings are broken up into editions so every couple years they'll start a new edition which is basically you get a new big book that kind of updates or consolidates or retcons the lore and then they will slowly but surely um, release all of the army books for all the playable factions, maybe um, squatting some of them or uh, retiring some of them, maybe adding new ones. Uh, but generally, they tend to keep the same factions and just kind of update them with new models and new rules. So during 8th edition of Warhammer Fantasy, as we were getting towards the end of the edition, at some point during 8th edition, Games Workshop made the decision to pull the plug. 
And the way they implemented that was that um, probably about 75 to 80% of the way through 8th edition, they released a book called End Times Nagash. And there was a lot of hype and build up to it. And basically the way they advertised it is literally the, um, the, the phrase, the, the code phrase or whatever you call it, um, the, the, the little line was... Um, tagline. Yeah, is that uh, it's the end times, even though few believe it. And the audience, the global audience did not realize that was literally very cheeky in our face. Because something that Games Workshop was very careful about is they did not tell anyone they were killing off fantasy. They basically advertised the end times as like a major campaign event, but no, none of us realized they were killing off fantasy until much later during the end times because the end times lasted for about one or two years. So they released. I get, I end get times. the, I get the the appeal of shock value, but considering what they were doing, that feels like the kind of thing you want to, I don't know, dole out to your player base. Well, if you, wanted, way. <laughs> if you wanted to keep them in good faith, yes. But Games Workshop at the time did not give this a shit about it. was the dark days of Games Workshop. Uh, yeah, these were the... Talk, this, this they was, didn't this talk was, to anybody. They didn't update. They didn't listen. They didn't have a social media or any community outreach. This, these, yeah. there, there, there's a whole lot of factors going on, but these were not the good days of Warhammer. You no, know, this, this was when Games Workshop was 100 billion percent a bastard company. Um, like their, their CEO at the time was very infamous, um, for publicly stating when basically he was being asked about the state of the games because 40 K and fantasy were losing money because a lot of people were not playing anymore, um, mm -hmm. because the rules were getting really bad and like the game just wasn't enjoyable. And he basically said, um, well, as far as I'm concerned as a company, we make models, everything else comes second. So for him, he was saying, I'm here to sell toys I don't give a damn about these books. I don't give a damn about the competitive community. Like, you can buy our stuff and shut up. Um, so as a quick side note, because, I mean, Games Workshop today in the uh, era of, you know, 2021 is not a perfect company by any means, but they certainly seem to be a lot more in tune with their community. I mean, some things they're still out of tune with, but... They seem a lot more in tune than what you're describing. Is, oh, yeah. uh, that's, is that like another uh, well, conversation's here, worth of story there? Let me, yeah, let me put this into perspective, okay? My channel could not have existed back then. Do you ever wonder why all of the 40K YouTube channels and Warhammer Fantasy lore channels didn't exist in the early days of YouTube? Like, if you go back and look, the oldest of our channels, I am the second oldest Warhammer Fantasy channel on the entire website. Yes. That's, first of all, awesome. That's impressive. Second of all, I always just assumed it was because of how niche it was and that it's really grown in the last, like, according to numbers I've read, it's as a hobby, it's really grown quite a lot in the last seven or eight years. Yeah, so. because Games Workshop finally took their hands off the damn wheel. Because the problem was, if you go back to around the end times, which was about 10 years ago, you will see the issue was not that there wasn't an interest or a passion. The issue was that Games Workshop was infamous for being cruel of that they would unleash cease and desist like you would not fucking believe if you made a youtube video about them if you tried to uh, if you showed pictures of any of the books online if you tried to if you talked about point values online they would find it and they would they would take you to court they would stop it to think about because like yeah, that is so weird for me to think about because, like, 
you know, for example, I'm not saying that because I was way into it before this came out, but like uh, Bricky, when he did his like factions of 40K video and how crazy big that goes, I know a lot of people who got into the hobby because of that, like a single YouTube video in the right moment in the right way can can really increase you know, the, 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 the base. So it's really weird to hear that. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> no, that's for that's a while modern. there. People thought that games workshop was going to go under. I was, you know, getting into the hobby and like, I don't know how much longer this is going to have. They've really not done a good job. They've pissed off the fans. This age of Sigmar thing isn't going to work. They're still doing the same shit. Yeah. And you know, that, that kind of boils down to there, there are, you know, especially in the 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 early two thousands, a lot of companies were really struggling with the internet and did not understand the power of free advertising by allowing people to you know show off their creations and stuff. A lot of these companies, you know, kind of had the view that the um, unfortunately some still do, like the music industry, which is that they think, oh, if I'm not directly profiting off every single instance of this thing being used, I'm losing money when they don't realize that that's not the way the world works anymore. A lot of people could just pirate shit or they're just never going to hear about you. So if anything, you're losing money. But so many companies and Games Workshop was like this are so immensely greedy or have or want to have so much, they want to have complete and under control and power over their IPs, which is what Nintendo struggles with a lot these days. That, I was to say, it sounds like Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, that they're they're just behind the times. They have I know a that, way too old-fashioned way of looking at things. Yeah, I do remember that, like, I think this was, like, six years ago or something like that. Uh, maybe a little less than that. I remember there's a channel I really used to watch a lot called Extra Credits that was uh, about, like, video game design. And they were talking about Games Workshop a, Games Workshop's approach to IP in their video games. because. <laughs> Yeah. There was a there was a span of time. I don't know how true this is anymore, but there was a span of time where Games Workshop's approach shifted from basically complete and total trying to protect it to give it to anyone with like a couple people, and you'll get bad games, but you get a lot of good games too. And so we yeah, just got we're, like we're, a... we're still in that era. <laughs> we're, yep. we're still there. Uh, but which, hey, people and, are talking yeah, about it. it. It has it has worked. Like it is one hundred percent work. Anyway, so getting back to the end times. So that, that was kind of the situation, was that Games Workshop decided to release a series of books separated by two to three months, and each book basically advanced this storyline of the end times, and it attempted to wrap up Warhammer Fantasy and culminated with the planet literally imploding. so weird to hear the idea of a Warhammer narrative wrapping up. I know. <laughs> yeah. such, a, such a fever dream. And, you know, the sad thing was that at first, it was awesome. Um, End Times Nagash was a fantastic book. It is fucking massive. Um, like, it is it is one of the largest books Games Workshop has ever printed. Um, but it's because they put a lot of time and effort into it, weirdly. So it was telling this massive narrative and you're reading through it and all these crazy things are happening. Characters are coming back left and right, but some characters are dying, which is like crazy. Um, a lot of people are being killed off, but like in pretty interesting and thematic ways. But it was very exciting. Uh, Nagash came back and got his gorgeous model that he still has to this day, which impressed a lot of people. 
Um, the rules were changed for competitive, and the competitive scene, for the most part, really liked a lot of the new rules. Um, Wait, everybody... How do you spell Nagash so I could look up this model? N-A-G-A-S-H. I wasn't sure if it was like a, a Nash thing. He's uh, a big boy. But... Nash. Oh. Oh, he's yeah. a big skeleton dude. Yeah, Nagash, yep. Nagash is the great necromancer. He's the guy that invented necromancy. Um, in the Warhammer fantasy. That is a universe. sick model. <laughs> look yeah. up his original model so you can see the glow up. Yeah, look at look at yeah, look up like old old Nagash and it's very silly. Uh, he used to have the, a very <laughs> I love that. Why? <laughs> that is that is That's the no, king no necromancer. That is pathetic comparatively. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but so they they introduced all these really cool new models. A lot of people were excited. They introduced a new lore of magic that Nobody allowed in tournaments because it was really overpowered, but it was fun. And uh, this big book was great. Then the second book came out, and the quality rapidly decreased. The second book was called Glotkin, and it featured the fall of Altdorf. So it was basically... But the weird thing was how narrow the focus was and how tiny the book was. Um, and that Nagash was this massive epic that covered years worth of fighting between it covered the, uh, the fall of the tomb Kings empire. So Nehekaro was destroyed by, or subsumed by Nagash, um, Nagash, etc. The imperishable had their final big climactic showdown. Um, and it was wild. And it like, it had like this amazing artwork. Um, uh, Carl Franz was, uh, seemingly killed by, um, a, a blood dragon vampire, Chaos starts invading the Empire. Kislev is destroyed. Um, Talea and Estalia are overrun by the Skaven. Like, things are just going nuts. Skaven! Sorry, I still know. I still don't know too much about Warhammer fantasy, but I like the Skaven in principle. <laughs> oh, the Skaven are fantastic. Uh, they're actually one of, like, the few mostly original things <laughs> in fantasy. Um, and I just love the idea of underground rat people that throw poison and shit at people. <laughs> And so, um, so, but like literally every single race in Warhammer Fantasy made an appearance in the Gatch. They at least got a page and like a little bit of art. Then Glotkin came out. Glotkin was very, very, very hyper focused. Isn't Glotkin a Nurgle thing? It sounds like a Nurgle word. It is. Yes, it's a Nurgle character. And the Glotkin was designed from the perspective of okay, Nurgle and Nurgle alone launches this three-pronged invasion of the Empire with the goal of destroying Altdorf. So, like, one of his armies basically comes straight down um, from the north, one of his armies curves around the right, and one of his armies goes to Marienburg and invades up the river. And it was an interesting book that had a lot of cool moments. It, it basically allows you to follow the death of Bretonia, um, because King Lewin Lanker, pretty much all the Bretonian characters die in that book. Carl uh, Franz dies in that book, even though they don't reveal that until later. Uh, but, like, a ton of characters die. A ton of characters die. Uh, and the book primarily focused on Nurgle, the Beastmen, the Empire, the Vampire Counts, and Bretonia. But here's where it got weird. What happened in Glotkin that made everyone kind of quirk their head a bit was that in Glotkin, most of the important characters were new. So they introduced a bunch of new characters for what's supposed to be the end of the world. Instead of the Nurgle invasion being led by pre-established Nurgle characters like 
Festus the Leech Lord, Kugoth Plague Father, and all those guys, they instead said, um, no, 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 here's the Glotkin. The Glotkin are this new giant supermodel um, who you've never heard of before, but they're Nurgle's most powerful champion. Are they then still in? Because I think I've seen that model. Yes. Is... So okay. this is where this is where they started screwing up because Glotkin introduces all these villains who, in a fantasy point of view, are not important. And in Age of Sigmar point of view, these characters are very important. The Glotkin and the Magath writers, who are the other three characters introduced, and the Putrid Blight Kings and all this stuff, are Age of Sigmar models. They were built on the Age of Sigmar model scale, and they were built and designed so that when Age of Sigmar started, Nurgle had an army ready to go. So this wasn't about fantasy anymore. It was about Age of Sigmar. As a sidebar, though, that I'm looking at Nurgle, Rotbringers, the Glotkin, just the one model in the box, and that is a really tight-looking model, to be fair. Oh, yeah, gorgeous model, but a weird pick at the time. He would have been great to introduce in AOS, but they wanted him... They wanted them now. Also, if I might say, it's also kind of a weird thing to me, and maybe this is me stretching too far, but of the Chaos Gods, I know they generally follow the same kind of pattern in, in Fantasy and Sigma they do in 40k. Nurgle, whose whole thing is stagnation and the certainty that you know things just will go on and on and on, seems like a weird choice for ending your entire setting. Well, you'd be right. Um, they, they do kind of hand wave it, and that basically um, in the onset of the end times, there is like massive amounts of disease and decay spreading everywhere. And Nurgle being Nurgle uh, kind of blossoms into being like the top dog. And while he's the top dog, he tries to go for the killing shot and destroy the Empire with Archeon's blessing. Archeon kind of like lets all of his guys go um, to go do this invasion. Now, it's worth noting Nurgle fails. He, he kills Karl Franz, but due to some magic shenanigans we'll get into in a minute, he actually loses the battle for the Fall of Alt. Um, so Nurgle, basically from that point, is defeated and he's out of the running. Now you might think, oh, okay, so we got a Nurgle book. Maybe it'll be like another Chaos God next. Well, no, Cain was next. Cain was another extremely short book that was focused purely on the Elves. So it's about the High Elves, the Dark Elves, and the Wood Elves. Um, having their big final civil war to determine who would be in charge. And this is where shit started to get really weird. Because, say, like, I, I believe you, but at least that sounds like a a natural thing to do in your end times. It series. is. Yeah, we're bouncing around. We're covering the corner. It is. I mean... and, until you read the storyline. <laughs> Kane, on the, I'm not exactly sure who the author was for Kane, but whoever decided to write Kane operated under the idea that it would be much more exciting to subvert expectations than to oh, give no, people what they were expecting. Uh, you know, subverting expectations can make for great storylines, but if that's what you're focusing on, you end up with the later seasons of Game of Thrones. So. Yeah, and that's basically what Kane was. Kane was a book that took the well-established narrative of the Elven Civil War and kind of like ripped it in half and reassembled it backwards just to kind of make it, try and make it interesting. It it came out with the idea that, okay, um, Tyrion 
gives in to the the wrath of Cain in his blood. Like, you know, he's got the curse of Asurian in his blood. Uh, curse of Anarian, sorry. And uh, he falls to Cain through a series of shenanigans that kind of made sense. But where the book gets weird is it pulls a massive retcon that completely fucks with the entirety of the elves' history, which is that the author introduces the 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 in his opinion canonical fact well he does this a couple times one thing that he says that was super weird is he says okay the warhammer fantasy world is not just like a planet that the old ones found and seeded which is is what happened that's a fact we know it instead the author tries to say no 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 the warhammer fantasy world is simply a new reality and an endless cycle of realities where uh, a bunch of entities like godlike beings at the end of a world escape that reality into a new reality where they build a new world free of chaos until chaos notices it, shows up, attacks it, everything plays out the same over and, and like it's always the same. Like, and you know, I will. Again, maybe this is just because I'm an outsider. That sounds not like a necessarily terrible idea, and it doesn't sound like those things are can be or have to be mutually exclusive, but it does sound like a very big kind of crazy sci-fi idea to introduce right at the end of Sorry, what hold you're on, give me just a second. My headphones dying. I'm gonna uh, oh, there we go. Sorry, can you repeat that? Oh, I was just gonna say, maybe this is just because I'm an outsider and this is my perspective, but that doesn't initially strike me as something that has to be mutually exclusive with the whole seated the planet thing. And, but it is a weird sci-fi, like very uh, sci-fi thing. Finish, to introduce it in. Okay. Hold on. Oh no, it gets worse. Yeah. Let me finish. That's not, that's not the problem. The problem is the actual contradiction that it introduces. Okay. Which is that was... the, so the person telling us this, the, the, the person the author is using to explain this is the elven goddess Lilith. Um, Lilith is the goddess of prophecy and the moon, but she's also kind of a complicated character because she's also the lady of the lake. Um, she pretends That's to be the lady of the lake. Of course. Um, so the problem with Layeth is that what she tells the elves, and this is introduced as factual by the author, is that, okay, so there was a prior reality that was destroyed, and I, Lilith, and the other elven god, but only the elven gods, escaped that reality came to this planet and created you and chaos followed us here. That does sound like a big spit in the face of the slod. Yeah. The problem is where the fuck do the lizardmen fit into this equation? Where do the old ones fit into this equation? Where do the dwarves and humanity who created them? May I ask, because you're saying it's presented as factual and I believe you again, again, as you read this, I am curious what about the presentation uh, precludes the possibility that this goddess is basically saying this to create their own mythology to indoctrinate their people, which is something that sounds very in line with Warhammer settings. I I would love if that was the case, but the problem with why Lilith is explaining this is that she's explaining this to Teclas because she's trying to help him understand why the only reason the end times has a chance to end differently is that he has to take her place in the cycle. Because she's not, you have to understand what's so crazy about is what she 
is telling us is not that there has been prior realities and people have escaped and chaos has followed them, which also doesn't make sense because in fantasy, we have a very well-documented ins- We know when and how the chaos gods were born. That's a um, weird retcon. Like, if you take that as its own idea and put it over here and it's like, well, that's a really cool story. I'd like to read that story. But as you said, they've already established the history. Like, it's written. Here are characters from this. Here are the events. Here's the proof of these events. This just feels like... I, there's also... The, sorry, maybe if it was, like, presented as a... Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're not, we're, not, we're, we're not even in the... So, hold on. Let, let, <laughs> oh, let, let no. me get to the super fucky thing that's about to happen. All right. Let me, let, let me finish this. So... Lalayet's idea to fix the end times is that because listen, so listen to what I'm telling you. It's not that Lalayet is saying that okay, people have always escaped and chaos always follows. No, 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 no. What she's telling us is that the exact same events play out every single time. So the elf gods escape, they create a pantheon. Some of them are underworld gods, some of them are heaven gods. One of them named Cain always betrays the others, always tries, and like everything plays out the exact same. So Lilith knows what's going to happen to her because it's already happened before. And the elven gods are stuck in an eternal cycle of always essentially being reincarnated into a world and repeating the same events the whole point of Cain is that they're going through it again during the end times because all the gods have now taken on mortal form. And Lilith ends up substituting Teclas in her place. And because Teclas is not Lilith, but he's taking her place, he kind of causes events to play out like they should. But because Lilith has now been able to step out of this cycle, she kind of fucks with it and causes a bunch of weird problems. But then the book gets even weirder when it introduces some further strange ideas. Like the elves, some of the wood elves goes into Nurgle's garden to find Shalia, who's being in prison there out of nowhere, but she is. And they meet this guy who is a knight clad in silver, strange silver armor they've never oh, seen before, yeah. who is impossible to kill and ends up joining up with them and fighting the demons of Nurgle and stuff. And it was super confusing because a lot of us thought, and this is still a very prevalent theory and a possible theory, even though it seems to have be somebody else, that it was Caldor Drago from 40K. That's my theory. I, I remember like this now. Randomly showing up here. But it, it seems that from Age of Sigmar's perspective, that it's actually a Stormcast Eternal who due to time weirdness and chaos was like back in time. But I do know I, I did literally think Grey Knight as soon as you said it, but I, I know that the idea of fantasy and 40k being in the same universe is a very contentious, although as far as I understood, a very niche theory. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's possible, it just has a lot of problems. The warp connections uh, where it gets I don't know. I like Caldor Drago over Stormcast because I can wrap my head around that easier. Because like it's yeah, white warp shenanigans. That's 40K's biggest trump card, warp shenanigans. Yeah, but so, but what where they really lost everybody was with Malekith. So, oh, I know this author, one. The author Before you get to Malekith, I just want to say that the idea of retcons are interesting to me because I feel like there are some retcons that you 
not only can easily get away with, but are really good ones. Like I admit, I've only been into 40k really as a hobby since uh, essentially mid eighth edition. So I'm very new, but I've heard many people who we've talked to like on the show, talk about uh, things like the Necrons who have gone through some very strong uh, retcons. In fact, a friend of mine who played in like sixth and seventh edition got into an argument with me about what their purpose is. Cause he was like, they eat souls. And I was like, no, they got dynasties and stuff. And, but like that kind of thing where you're just modifying, I think a faction that's already kind of not necessarily super fleshed out. Like that's the kind of thing that's super acceptable. What you're describing is much more of a, we're going to upend the entire core of this setting entirely. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I, I honestly don't think you could be a fan. Uh, well, I guess you can, I, I, I shouldn't gatekeep like that. But if you have issues with retcons, you're going to have a bad time with Games Workshop IPs because they like to retcon all the time. <laughs> it's like their well, favorite thing to can do. Be, retcons can be good because it's especially when it's fixing something that doesn't work. Yeah. Like, this this is yeah, I didn't to, know this. This but, is I don't like this at all. So so here here was the real big fu they delivered to everyone was the Malekith situation. So Malekith becomes the last Phoenix King. Which you should probably looks... explain who Malekith is first. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Also, Phoenix so, King makes me think directly of Avatar, so, you know, elaborate. <laughs> uh, so, Malekith is one of the greatest evils in the Warhammer Fantasy universe. He is one of the oldest elves still alive. Um, he was the He's the son of Anarian. And Anarian was, like, the one true god elf. Like, he was a badass who single-handedly saved Ulthuan many times from the predations of demons back when the demons were, like, everywhere. But Anarian got corrupted because he gave in to wrath. And he drew the sword of Cain, and even though he was blessed by two gods, being Ashurin and Cain, um, he had a lot of problems. And his son, Malekith, who, uh, his wife, Anarian's wife, to have Malekith, was Morathi. And Morathi is literally like just the worst. Like she, <laughs> she is, she's known as the hag sorceress and Morathi is an elf who will stop at nothing to achieve, to further her own ends. She'll bargain with demons. She, uh, she'll do blood sacrifices, soul sacrifices, torture people, make bargains with terrifying powers and gods. She manipulates anyone and everyone to further her own ambitions. And her son got a lot of her side of the family. Which, Anarian did have other children with his first wife, uh, but she died during the demon invasion, and he did not know his children through her were still alive, until, and, but, and he died not knowing that they had survived. But the long story short is that Malekith was a prodigy for a long time. He was kind of like the ultimate elf. He's the one who, he was the first ambassador to the dwarfs, because Malekith didn't want to hang out in Ulthuan anymore because after his dad died, he wanted to be Phoenix King because of an, and an, an, basically saying like, you know, it's my right. I'm an Arian son. I should be the heir to the throne. And the high elf princes decided, ah, you know what? An Arian kind of turned into a douchebag at the end there. Hmm. We really don't like, we are crippled. We do not want a We're They were scared if they picked Malekith as the King, that he would drag them into another war and they were tired. So they picked someone that they deliberately thought would never want to fight a war, which is... Um, they wanted a weak king, essentially. Not a weak king. They wanted a king who would be focused on growth and art and peace and not getting more people killed. Okay, um, fair enough. 
and so they went with uh, Belshanar. And Malekith outwardly took it with grace. Uh, his mother did not. <laughs> but uh, Malekith was like, okay, whatever, I'm going to go explore the world then. So he goes and explores the world and does all this super badass stuff. And he even meets the dwarves. And he meets the first dwarf high king, Snorri Whitebeard. And they actually become literal best friends. And they fight back to back against the hordes of chaos and push all of the beastmen and warriors of chaos completely out of the old. So, like, Malekith's awesome. But then things start to kind of go down. In this ancient ruin, he finds this iron circlet. And when he puts it on, it kind of opens his mind to um, the realms of magic in a way that he never could before. And he starts tampering with dark magic and starts messing with powers he maybe shouldn't. And he starts growing stronger and stronger and stronger. But as he keeps delving into these forces, they kind of start to corrupt him a bit. And he, he starts to become more and more envious of not owning the Phoenix throne. He eventually goes home to find out that his mother, being the bitch that she is, has started a mm. bunch of pleasure cults all over the place and is... Uh, Sounds Slaanesh-y. Yeah, uh, very similar to Slaanesh. Um, and is generally getting a lot of people killed. Um, so he actually is the one who ends up arresting his mother. He actually goes after her and uh, puts her under arrest. Um, but he doesn't kill her. He arrests her, and he, she slowly but surely kind of keeps whispering into his ear over more and more of his visits about how, you know, he deserves to be Phoenix King. It's his right. It's his birthright. Everyone else is beneath him. They don't understand. He knows more about the dwarves and has, like, caused a new golden age for the elves because of the trade with the Dwarven Empire. That's his accomplishment, not Belshinar's. You know, he's the one that pushed chaos out of the old world and restored peace. That's his accomplishment, not Belshinar's. And so all of this pride just keeps welling and up and up and up in him. And he finally breaks and he poisons Belshinar. He goes to visit him and tricks him into drinking a poison goblet, murders him. And then he goes to the Shrine of Ashurin and he pulls a big move by uh he gathers all the princes there so everyone who has the ability to elect who the next phoenix king is and sorry he declares, hold, hold on is this is this happening in the malekith story or is this all preamble uh this is all this is malekith's story but this is like okay just making sure i was years before the end times all right just making sure I'm, i know where we are in the story yeah so, yeah this is this is before the empire even exists um like thousands of years before the empire exists so, uh, and we're this. I'm trying to establish for everyone how messy what the end times tried to do is. So Malekith goes to the Shrine of Ashurin, which is a sacred place that is so sacred and holy to the elves, you are not allowed to have weapons inside. Um, you have to completely disarm yourself. It is a place of diplomacy and peace. So Malekith shows up and he tells all of the princes who are gathered, one prince is missing, Prince Emric, who we'll get to later, um, he tells all the princes, um, okay, so Belshazzar's dead. We have to elect a new Phoenix King. And everyone goes, oh my God, what happened? And he said, uh, I did what y'all told me to. And I followed the pleasure cult. I followed it all the way up to the top. Turns out Belshazzar was um, a pleasure cultist. He was in charge of the whole thing. And when I confronted him on being a, a pleasure cultist, he killed himself. So we should elect a new Phoenix King right now. That conveniently sounds like, and he killed himself with no one around except me. Yeah, <laughs> And so a lot of people were, a lot of the princes were kind of like, that's a little sus. 
Um, <laughs> like that's that's a little that's a little convenient. A lot of sus. So uh, many of the princes tell Malekith, no, we are not electing a new king. This is very suspicious. Like, how do we know you didn't murder him? It seems like you murdered him. And so Malekith tells them, okay, you know what? Your votes don't count anyway. Signals his guards who all come in armed and butcher all the princes. So the princes have no weapons. They're completely massacred by uh, Malekith's guards. Uh, Morathy shows up. They So he... He defiles the most sacred place in their culture to murder the ruling lords. Yes, yeah, so no yep. one no one else can be Phoenix King, because only the princes can be Phoenix Kings. Um, and so he murders any potential competition, except for Prince Emmerich, who we'll get into later. And he says, oh, well, okay, I guess that makes me Phoenix King now. And he goes to walk through the flames of Ashurin, because the way you become Phoenix King is you have to pass through the flames of Ashurin. Now... The, this is a really key part of the story in that Ashurin is a very noble god. And when Malekith tries to walk through the flames, Ashurin says, ha ha, no. <laughs> and Malekith gets horribly burned. He gets like absolutely annihilated by the flames and shrieking in agony, he throws himself back out of the flame. And he's basically like, barely alive he's just like a scorched black and his mother gathers him up uh with his guard and they flee and they go find this guy who forges him this suit of armor because malekith is going to die there's no surviving this and so this suit of armor is fused to his flesh um kind of like darth vader style um except for he can't take off any of it it's all like branded to his flesh and he re-emerges as malekith the witch king Light spoilers, but I just Googled Malekith, saw the name of the Witch King, and this guy's giving me real Sauron vibes. Yes, he's very... It's it's, uh, it's intentional. Yeah. Not the and good so, guy. And so Malekith, the Witch King, declares himself king of Ulthuan, but the one surviving Prince Emric, uh survived the assassins who were sent to kill him, and he says, yeah, no, fuck that. Screw you. We're, we're not giving into this. So a civil war breaks out, and it's a horrible civil war known as the Sundering. So, like, brother fights brother, mother fights father. Like, it's it's a mess. And uh, in this, Malekith is eventually defeated. Um, he actually beats Emric, who renames himself Kalidor I. Um, and and they have this big final epic duel. And Malekith actually wins until the Phoenix Guard show up, which the Phoenix Guard are the heralds and blessed warriors of Ashuran. They're the guardians of the shrine, and they had a really big fucking problem with Malekith killing everyone there. So when they're fighting Malekith, they all stab him with their halberds, and because their halberds are blessed by Ashuran, it literally causes the flames to reignite on Malekith's body. So he flees from the battle. And Malekith gets defeated, Ulthuan, but he tries to destroy Ulthuan after that, because Malekith decides if I can't have Nulthuan, no one can have Ulthuan. So he unleashes a spell to destroy the Ritual, which the Ritual is this big vortex at the center of Ulthuan that channels out all the chaos magic in the world. So if the vortex exists, demons cannot manifest wherever they want. But Malekit decides if I destroy the vortex, A, Ulthuan will sink and be completely annihilated, and B, demons will be able to cross the world as they please and this will be the apocalypse. And he decides that is better than him not being king. So, you know, real 
good, upstanding fellow. You might yeah. have a little bit of an ego problem, but he's good overall. His mom says he's a good kid. Yeah, so with all that in mind, let's fast forward to the end times, many thousands of years later. Malekith, uh, seeing that the end times is happening, decides to make his play for Ulthuan once more. Leads an invasion of Ulthuan. Big fight breaks out. During this invasion, however, the author comes out and says the following as fact. Because Teclis explains it to us, and it's further reinforced by uh, the Phoenix King at the time, um, Finnebar. Finnebar was a great Phoenix King. He's like the modern Phoenix King, if you're playing like Total War Warhammer. Finnebar was a very cool Phoenix King whose whole thing was he traveled the world, and he got to know the, the empires of men, and he met the Wood Elves for the first time, and he was an explorer. And the wood or the elves were like, yeah, let's let's vote that guy to be Phoenix King because he actually knows what the hell's going on out there, and he was great. Like he wasn't he was an okay warrior, Svenabar the Seafarer, but it was more that he was he knew what was going on and he was actually open to diplomacy and talking to and hanging out with other nations and trying to save the world as a whole instead of being insular, which a lot of high elves were. So we find out that Teclas helped Malekith with a ritual that allowed Malekith to open a portal into Finnebar's throne room where he finds Finnebar like a shell of a man being consumed by guilt and insanity. And Malekith, instead of putting him out of his misery, because Malekith finds out that he, according to Teclas, is the rightful heir. He is supposed to be Phoenix King. He always was supposed to be the Phoenix King. And so every Phoenix King that has come since has been tortured by visions of madness sent by Ashurin, the King of the Gods, who is supposed to be very noble and pure. He has been sending suicide visions to all these Phoenix Kings and driving them insane with guilt and madness, trying to get them to kill themselves so that Malekith would be king. Then why burn Malekith in the first place? There you go. So we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a second. So Malekith, realizing this, because he's been told by Teclas, instead of putting um, um, Finnebar out of his misery, Finnebar, who thinks I've done something terrible, Malekith, I'm so sorry, Malekith instead tortures him for days. This Malekith is the good guy now, remember. Yeah, Malekith <laughs> literally tortures him for so long that when Malekith comes back to Nagaroth, his armor is covered in dried blood. Um, and he didn't even, he wasn't even willing to kill Finnebar. Um, so instead, hold on, so at this point, we're supposed to basically be saying anything that Malekith is doing at this point is implicitly supported by this noble god, Ashurin? Yep. Yes. And not because of anything Malekith has done, but only because he's Anarian's son. Even though he's not Anarian's firstborn son, he's Anarian's third child with his second wife. His first two children were through the Everqueen, Astariel. And for some reason, they don't count. Oh, sorry. I've seen that. Well, I've seen a model called the Everqueen that was one of the coolest models I've ever seen ever. So anyway, so, sorry. Uh, so... Malekith not only tortures Finnebar within an inch of his life horribly, but then to finish him off, instead of just killing the poor bastard, 
He literally opens a portal to the realm of chaos and allows demons to come out and devour Finnabar in his soul. The true so king, like, everybody. So you're watching like, okay. And you find out Ashuran's entire plan was that Anarian, um, the first Phoenix King, the way Anarian got Ashuran's power is that he gave everything to Ashuran. And once he had, and Ashuran didn't answer. And once he had nothing else to give, he gave himself to the flame. So he walked into the flames and he died. So Anarian was completely consumed by the flames and turned to ash. But because he did that, Ashuran then gives him his blessing and he his body is rebuilt in a godly physique and form and he walks out of the flame being the avatar of Ashuran. So Ashuran... Through this, so the author decides to extend this logic to Malika's problem isn't that he was evil, it's that he wasn't willing to die for it. So Malekith got too scared, and because he was in too much pain, threw himself back out of the fire. So because he didn't walk all the way through it, it doesn't count. And Ashuran, right. instead <laughs> of. It makes it sound like, it makes it sound like Ashuran is very. Um doesn't give a shit about merit. He's like, nah, blood, bro. That's what matters. <laughs> yeah, like, they basically turned him into Cain. And so, and so you're reading this like, what the fuck? And the problem is, this doesn't make sense. Because hasn't, says, hasn't at this point, and according to what you said, hasn't at this point the Malekith as the Witch King been doing evil shit for, like, thousands of years? Yeah. See, yeah, about, about like, a, like I a knew... solid 6,000 years, at least. Yeah. I knew... I wasn't part of the Warhammer thing, but I knew it was like, okay, the Dark Elves are the bad guys. I was like, yeah, but their king was the one true king of the elves. And they said, yeah, like, okay, now I get why you guys are pissed. That is just, that makes no sense. He was like thousands of years of raping and pillaging. Yeah, but he's the true king. Yeah. What are they smoking over there? So, okay, here comes the Wombo. Are you ready? So yeah, here's the problem. Here's the problem. <laughs> Assurance entire logic kind of holds up for a second at first glance because, okay, if Malekith had not given up and walked all the way through his, the flames, he would have been king. Okay. Like, that seems like a really weird technicality from this god. But, you know, technically, no one but Anarian ever successfully did that. Also, uh, so, sorry, things... as a side note, it feels like a god who's as noble as you're describing would respond to this not by sending insanity-driving hallucinations to people for thousands of years. Right. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Anyway. So, like, none of the Phoenix Kings, to, to Assurance credit, none of the Phoenix Kings successfully walked through the flame like Anarian did. All of them, after the whole Malekith incident, the the uh, priests of Assurian decided to be better safe than sorry, and they would, like, cast warding spells on the people who are going to be Phoenix Kings, so they would walk through the flame, but it wouldn't kill them. Like, it would be painful to make sure that they were, like, appropriate for the job but they they weren't like burned to ashes but at the same time none of them wielded assurance power they were just the phoenix king but they didn't have any like magic powers or anything other than they had before they took the office yeah it was a title um but here's here's the problem it the author literally says that assurance took a deliberate act to make sure that every phoenix king would die a horrible death and be driven to madness and insanity to demonstrate his displeasure. To me, this the, sounds like Assurance is a dick. <laughs> the problem is... The problem is the there is a Phoenix King... And to their credit, 
most of the Phoenix Kings died pretty miserably. Um, you know, Tethlis the Slayer was uh, murdered uh, either by an assassin or his own bodyguard because he was just a bloodthirsty maniac. Caldor uh, II was ki- killed by Gotrek Starbreaker at the end of the War of Vengeance. Caldor I drowned himself at sea rather than be captured by the Dark Elves. Belshinar was poisoned by Malekith. So, like, okay, we're going pretty cool. Problem is, there's one Phoenix King. Actually, I'm going to grab my book because I can't remember his name off the top of my head. There's one Phoenix King who fucks up the entire thing the author is trying to establish. And that is Bel Corhadris. Bel Corhadris died of old age, peacefully in his bed. Okay, so he was ta- the guy was, ta- he was taking an off day. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to rest. You can die of old age. Belcor Hodges okay. was right. the scholar. So, so we established that this, and this is all happening in the, the Kane, or... Yeah, Kane. Okay, and, so... And, and I'll what? just kind of fast forward us to the end. Thankwell happens. Thankwell was okay. It, it, it's just about the Skaven uh, defeating slash killing off the dwarfs and the lizard men, um, and also carries a couple of little shenanigans. And then Arkhan ha- killed off the Lizardmen? That sounds impressive. <laughs> kind of. They lay the Skaven. Okay, bear with me. The Skaven created a doomsday device that shot a laser beam at the Chaos Moon, which caused it to explode. And the Chaos Moon started falling towards the Earth, which obviously a moon hitting the Earth would be probably bad especially when it's made out of irradiated chaos insanity particles. So the Lizardmen, uh, Mazda Mundi basically single-handedly destroys most of the moon by himself. Just through using sheer psychic power and magic, uses the geomantic web to literally just punch the shit out of all these falling shards trying to save the planet from destruction. That but sounds the, extremely JoJo's, and I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but the effort kills him. And he destroys most of the moon, but not all of it. So a lot of these moon shards hit Lustria, but the Lizardmen pieced out at this point because it turns out all the Lizardmen's temple cities weren't actually temple cities. They're spaceships. So all of the yep, Lizardmen I, I, activated their spaceships, and all the spaceships flew away into space. So the Lizardmen are actually the only canonical true survivors of the end times. Fun fact. Oh, so they just pieced out. <laughs> yeah, they pieced out. But so Okay, so more, that was what was this book called? That, so that's Thankwell. Thankwell, uh, okay. And Thankwell also did some really weird stuff narratively. Like the book is called Thankwell, but Thankwell is the most minor Skaven character. The book actually much more heavily focuses on Quick Headtaker and Lord Skrulk. And the other thing that we started realizing in Thankwell is that Games Workshop no longer had a fucking idea what they were doing. Because they kept introducing all these different plot threads that ended up completely unresolved. And, like, you'd never see the characters again. So, like, scroll... How long until the world blows up at this point? One last book, which is Archaon. Archaon? Archaon. Like, Archaon the Everchosen. Okay. He's the final book. And his book was okay, it, it was very bizarre in a couple ways. For instance, they decided that Corn was going to be the big final bad guy. Like, Archaon unleashes the Blood Hunt of Corn, which is like this super army, um, which kind of makes sense. But the weirdest thing was instead of using a fantasy character, um, the prop. How do I say this politely? I appreciate that people love 40K. It's great, it's awesome. I think it's a cool setting in and of itself. 
but 40k authors should never be allowed to bring the things they like from 40k into fantasy because that's fucked up. And that yeah. happened a lot. Yeah, towards the end They're of two the separate worlds and they have different appeals. Yeah, so the final bad guy of Corn, so like the big bad that gets unleashed, is not a fantasy character, it's a 40k character. You know who Which they is. brought in? Who? Fucking Kabanda, the ultimate rival oh, of the Blood Angels. Really? Yep. So Kabanda, I didn't know that. Oh, that's bad. Kabanda comes in and is the ultimate final opponent who is only killed at the end. Wait, by wait, wait, wait. Sorry, you mean you mean the greater demon prince that Sanguinius fought? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh okay. Sorry, continue. Who never yeah, existed. A lot of great... Who never existed in fantasy before that. And has never been mentioned since because Games Workshop realized, oops. Because <laughs> no, they could have used Scarbrand, who got a brand new model and was, you know, the biggest, baddest corn uh, uh, character in fantasy, the only greater demon who had the audacity to attack corn himself and even dented his armor. He dented the armor of a fucking god. But no, Scarbrand gets killed off in a minor book that isn't even included in the main story. Malekith one-shots him with a spell. A spell! Kill him, <laughs> um, the god, yeah, and his magic with magic. Yeah, I just googled Kabanda at Fantasy to see his wiki, and it is two paragraphs. So <laughs> Yeah, it was a fucking travesty. And then the world blows up. Well, also, it's... Sorry, it just reminds me of... Uh, Sotek, are you a Star Trek fan at all? Uh, not really. Like, I, okay. I appreciate it. I, I never watched it. That's fine. All you need to know is that there's a thing that happens in uh, in Enterprise, which is the, the show that is actually like a prequel to the original series. And that show had four seasons. The first two were okay. The second two are, or the third and fourth one are really good. But in the very last episode of the last season of Enterprise, the storyline shifts from being about that crew to being about the Next Generation crew, like, watching stuff happened essentially on, on in the holodeck and the, it pissed off a lot of fans because it's like well first of all it's one of the worst episodes of television i've ever seen but partially because it's like we're watching this show for this crew why in the penultimate episode are we focusing entirely on a crew from a show two sh two or three shows ago why and, and just, it strikes me as the similar kind of emotion where it's like Kabanda might have been a cool character to bring in, you know, way earlier and, and have established him. But right now it's like you're doing this big event to end this thing and you choose to end it with a character who is prominent in the other game but has never even been introduced here. That just seems it feels very like, I don't know, lack of faith. I, I don't know what the oh, word yeah. is. Well, but yeah, and it's why all the fantasy fans were pissed. And one th what we ended up learning when Age of Sigmar came out is all of the major enemies and all of the models that came out during the End Times were there because of Age of Sigmar. They were not there. The End Times had virtually nothing to do with killing off fantasy. It had everything to do with setting up Age of Sigmar. It, they were like, okay, we got to bring Sigmar back. We got okay, hold have... on, wait, because I, I want to, I want to, I want you to mention more about that in a second. But just to cap off the narrative side of things, can you? Re how does the actual world explode again? <laughs> um, well, okay. There's one other thing I want to mention. So you remember when I told y'all that Kang was a shitty book? Yes. Do you want, do you yeah. want to hear the the most hilarious thing they actually ended up pulling? So what? the oh, entire no, there's more in there. Oh yeah, 
this was the ultimate thing that made me like just like want to blow my own eyes out. The whole point of Kane was to subvert expectations and that Malekith ends up essentially being the good guy. Like he he never stops being a dick, but he's like, okay, we just have to go with him. And Tyrion ends up being the villain. Tyrion is like the ultimate paragon of the High Elves in that he's like, he's literally like a shining knight of like just awesomeness. And he's like a sweetheart and has, is missing a lot of the things that make the elves nasty. He's still a little racist against non-elves compared to like Teclas. Um, and he definitely has anger problems uh, when it, because of the curse of an Aryan, but like overall, like his people loved him and he was a hero that would stop at nothing to protect his people. Well, they end up introducing the idea that he becomes the avatar of Cain. So he gets consumed by his bloodline, which granted some really shitty stuff happens to him to set that up actually really nicely. But the story ends with Tyrion dying. Like that's the literally like the, one of the last things that happened. Tyrion and Malekith have this final big epic fight. Tyrion wins. He cuts down Malekith and he goes in for the killing blow to show that Cain is the dominant god and he gets killed by Elithinar thanks to some interference by Teclas. Because uh, Elithinar was actually aiming at Malekith and Teclas pulled some shenanigans to make him shoot Tyrion instead. But um, Tyrion died. And with Tyrion's death, Cain also died. Because Cain had basically so heavily invested into Tyrion as his mortal avatar. And he was wielding the sword of Cain, which is literally the most powerful artifact in Warhammer Fantasy. And... He died. The Sword of Cain loses all of its power. Cain, the god, is dead. But it cost Teclas his brother to do so. Which was... I didn't agree with the narrative, but it was at least like, okay. Like, it's interesting, even though I don't like it. Here's the problem. I mean, you take it in a vacuum. Here's the problem. In Book 5, Archaon, Teclas appeared. Teclas returns after everyone's been wondering where the hell he's been. Turns out... Teclas um, stole. He has the he has the the Lord of Light in his staff because he shattered the vortex. <laughs> both the ones sank beneath the waves, and he's got um, one of the eight winds of magic contained in his staff. He also, during Thankwall, went to Middenheim, the most important safe bastion in the Empire, where the Empire was being led to make its final stand. And he kidnaps the power of Ulrich. So he goes to the guardian god of the city and steals his power, dooming everyone upstairs to die horribly. So he murders all these people and also allows Archeon to get to the artifact he would then use to destroy the world. So, 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 sorry if I keep coming back. So Archeon is the one who ends up actually destroying the world with yes, this Arche- artifact. Archeon is the Archeon's the ever chosen. He is the Ender of Worlds. Big chaos, bad guy. Yeah. That's his, he's, I've he's seen his Abaddon, model. But is... if Ab- he's Abaddon, but if Abaddon was successful. <laughs> um, I, I've um... seen his model, and I am not exaggerating when I say that there are many models that are in my like top list. Like uh, Mortarian is one of my top three models, but Archaon, the Ever Chosen's Age of Sigmar model, is my favorite Warhammer model I've seen. Period. Oh it's yeah, just... he got he got a, he got a big glam up in uh, in uh, Age of Sigmar. His, his, Anyone who doesn't know, it's basically it's what looks like a you know a, a chaosy knight dude with a flaming sword riding a dragon with three heads, each representing one of the three original chaos gods, and it's amazing looking. Yeah, it's a very impressive model. So so Teclas goes to Atholoran 
and utilizes without asking the Wood Elves for permission or understanding the possible damage this could cause uses the life sap of the Oak of Ages, which is basically Yggdrasil, right? It's it's the world tree. It's like the most important thing in the universe, hmm. in the of Warhammer Fantasy world. He uses that, the Wind of Light, and uh, Ulrich's power to resurrect Tyrion without the Canite problems. So he completely 180s the entire point of the Kane book and invalidates the millions that died and the destruction of his homeland by just immediately resurrecting his brother and making him good again. Okay. Which is just like, ugh. ugh. Right. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I, get, I get what you're saying, especially as that invalidation. All right, so, sorry, I'm just trying to get so, okay, my head, so, head yeah. wrapped around this now. And here, here's, and I'll just fast forward us to the very end. Very end, big, big fight happens. Archeon fights Sigmar, a whole bunch of crazy shit happens. Archeon is defeated by Sigmar, which was surprising. So Archeon loses, um, interestingly enough. He gets thrown down, he gets, uh, he gets like defeated by Sigmar and uh, falls down this kind of cliff. Um, typical like cartoon Disney style fall off the cliff of moment. Hans Gruber. Yeah. Um, but. So the way Archeon was going to destroy the world is that he found an artifact of the Old Ones from one of their spaceships, which those are around if you know where to look. And he did. And they used this artifact to basically, they corrupted it with this big ritual and they basically used it to rip open a rift to the realm of chaos itself in the middle of the planet. Because chaos, it turns, there are already two rifts to the realm of chaos. One's at the North Pole, one's at the South Pole. But Teclis explains that the poles, they, they kind of act as like magnets pushing against one another. So they cannot fully enwrap the planet and cause it to get absolutely annihilated. Um, there has to be something that disrupts the process. So Arcan's idea is to open a portal to the realm of chaos in the middle of the world on Mindenheim, which will then blow up another hole, screw with the whole system, and then the whole planet gets devoured by their own chaos. Functional plan. The plan um, is to turn the planet into an Eye of Terror. Yeah, essentially, yeah. You can think of it like that for 40k. So, Archeon succeeds and opens this rift. However, the good guys at kind of the last minute manage to contain it. And they're basically working to dispel it. So you have all of these gods, essentially, at this point, but they're all these individuals who have a wind of magic inside of them. They're what are called the incarnates. So you have, like, the incarnate of metal is Balthazar Geld, and he's got the actual wind of metal in him. Nagash is the incarnate of death. He's got the wind of death in him. And so they're all working together to close this rift. And the person who ends up destroying the world... Granted, a lot of people played massive roles... But the person who gets the final fuck you moment in is Manfred von Karstein, who completely against his character design, because the whole thing with Manfred is Manfred is a very sneaky, conniving character who will... The, uh, the vampire lords or something? Yes, he's one. Of, he's the last of the von Karsteins. Um, so yeah, he's Vlad's son. Uh, well, son by, like, you know, blood kiss, not son by uh, lineage. Yeah, anyway, um, so... He, his entire character revolves around the idea of that he will do anything to survive because he knows that eventually he can scheme his way to the top. That's his whole reason for being. This guy has lost. 
He's been nearly killed multiple times, but he always finds a way back and ends up taking over again. Well, Nagash is around, and Manfred doesn't like being Nagash's puppet. He really hates Nagash. But instead of being a consistent character, what he does instead is he realizes the world's about to end. However, the good guys are turning the tide. He knows if Chaos wins, everybody dies, and not a good death, like a horrific, horrific death. So what does he do? He walks up behind Balthazar Gelt, who's channeling this ritual, and stabs him in the back. He impales him through the back, kills Balthazar Gelt, which causes the whole ritual to get, get com completely fucking destabilized. Teclis attempts to stabilize it. It literally rips him about, uh, rips him apart on an atomic level. Nagash, because he's made of a little too much magic for his own good, gets absorbed into this chaos rift, and pretty much everybody dies. And as Sigmar standing there trying to rally the situation, Archeon cr has crawled back up this cliff and tackles him back down the cliff into a bottomless abyss. And Chaos proceeds to devour the world. And so the world is consumed by Chaos. The Dark Gods completely revel in their final victory and unleash chaos and mayhem. And there's all this crazy art of like how fucking bizarre it is. And after um, mm. the world is fully consumed by chaos and they unleash all this destruction, the dark gods um, literally implode the world. So the world just like okay. shrivels up and goes kaboom. So, so uh, right now we got to the the explosion or essentially the implosion part. I have so many questions about how this leads into the setting of Age of Sigmar, but we've been going a while now, and uh, that we'll have to save that for another conversation. Yeah. Instead, well, I got, I, I got one, one small episode. note. Well, one I was going to ask you a more another question, but go ahead. So the whole way Age of Sigmar technically kicks off, in a sense, is that it turns out that when Sigmar fell into that crack. That crack literally went down to the actual metallic core of the planet somehow. And he fell on it and kind of got stuck. He just held on to it. And it turns out it was a golden orb. So when the planet explodes, the core of the planet goes flying off into space with Sigmar on it. And none of the dark gods notice because they're too busy reveling and having a good time. I so thought that was a joke. Nope, that is a hundred percent. That was a joke. That is a hundred percent. Oh camp. God, no! That's how oh, Sigmar gets away. No, I've I've read that. And like, no, there's no way they did that. I know they did a lot of dumb things in the end time, but they didn't have. And Sigmar rode off on a magic rock. Yep, <laughs> and and that's why everybody. That's your tutorial on why everyone hated the end times and why a lot of fantasy fans hated Age of Sigmar for a long time. Well, and they don't. All right, well, hold on. Uh, so now we've gone through all the narrative. If you could, we've kind of talked about this already, but can you, in your opinion, wrap up, do you think the most important elements of the backlash, as in its severity, its cause, its validity, and its status? Uh, I guess. Sure. So like a quick rundown. Um, I think the backlash against the end times itself was totally justified. Um, the books were all incredibly expensive. They were at minimum, uh, usually around a hundred bucks each. 
Games Workshop did not explain they were killing off the setting, so they kept continuing to sell models and encouraging people to buy fantasy rules and fantasy models, despite knowing the fact they were killing off the setting and they would no longer be supporting any of these ranges. Nor did they tell anyone when they were taking these ranges off, so a lot of people no longer had the ability to buy models that they wanted because Games Workshop just took them off the shelves. Um, furthermore, um, getting the books was very difficult, even if you were, uh, many of them sold out, so you were having to pay exorbitant scalper prices for them. Once they did end the setting, they didn't explain to anybody what was happening or how it was happening. So we were left in the dark, just thinking Fancy was gone forever for somewhere between six months to, I think, a year and a half. As a Lizardman player, I remember being particularly terrified because on the online forums, Lustria Online, we were talking about the rumor mills and stuff, and a lot of people didn't, like, we knew something was coming afterwards, but most of the rumors were that none of the fantasy armies were coming back. One of the most prevalent rumors was that the Lizardmen were squatted, and so they wouldn't be coming back. So for many people, you had 30 years worth of collecting models completely killed off, and you could no longer use those models in any legal play in your favorite hobby stores, unless you were playing old fantasy and games workshop for about four to five years after the death of, um, sorry, six to seven years after the death of fantasy had a company policy where you were not allowed to play Warhammer fantasy in their stores. If you tried to, they would ask you to leave. Some stores were not as bad as others. Dick move. Sorry. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, when they did finally launch age of Sigmar as a big slap, fuck you in the face to everyone, the game came out with a zero point system. The points did not exist. There was no competitive play. The rules were, the entire rules were four pages long, and uh, most of the rules that were on the War Scrolls, as they call them, which now work very nicely, but many of the War Scroll rules were jokes, so they took a lot of people's favorite armies and mocked them. So if you were playing dwarves, if you had a unit of longbeards, they got the ability to reroll hits if you had a longer beard than your opponent. If you were playing Bretonia and you wanted to field Lewin Lanker or a model similar to his, you had to have an actual chalice and toast and say for the lady or something to reroll charge rolls. And that was pretty much all the rules. They were joke rules. And you there's funny joke rules like that can be really great in like moderation as part of the actual system. I've heard the rule of like, oh, in order to do this thing, you actually have to scream out like wah or something. But when you have four pages of rules and that's all you've got that I get what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, that, and like there were entire <laughs> and armies. coming off the back of this whole nightmare. Yeah. And uh, so and people and, did not want to be joked with. And, like, their literal wolf will balance. So if you wanted to play a competitive game of Age of Sigmar, what G uh, Games Workshop told us was just take all of your models that you own and put them on the table. That That's your army. So yeah, the one with the most money wins. We're definitely doing an episode on Age of Sigmar. And we'll section that up. But here's the big one. Like I, the know big that, final I know that question right now... I, that's why I was asking about also the status of the backlash. Because I know right now Age of Sigmar actually has... Like, oh, I, the, I, I love Age of Sigmar now. I love it so much it's not even funny. And I'm However, glad to hear that. <laughs> it was it was super hot garbage when it started. Yep. I, <laughs> I was there say, in those early days. I will say the backlash, I think, for the most part, is pretty much gone. I mean, they're bringing back Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer the Old World. Games Workshop is much more comfortable talking about fantasy. They encourage people to play it. The video games are fantastic. You're allowed to play the games in stores now and have a good time with it. Well, I know that Total War has gotten... The Total War Warhammer is, like, really popular. So it's, It is the reason we're getting Warhammer the Old World. Undeniably. Also, it sounds like... And I don't know the background of Games Workshop, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was something of a purge or at uh, least there, a was. Change of... <laughs> there was a massive purge 
the CEO of the company and all his buddies got completely fucking fired and chased out of the company. And they brought back the old guard. They brought back the original creators and said, save us. <laughs> <laughs> we done fucked all up. Right. No one likes our new system. Well, I think that's a that's a, a nice positive thing. But before we, because again, we um, there's a lot here. I didn't actually expect, but we got a lot of information. I I learned a lot today. But uh, Sotek, do you have any concluding thoughts on the end times as a as a ta- as a concept? Yes, I I think the end times is a very interesting thing to talk about nowadays because we have a lot more information and we also got to see where it led to. Honestly, living in the timeline that I do, I do not think the end times I, I'm glad it happened because it got think, us to where we think, are now. Yeah, so sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, but do you think in hindsight then with what we know now, it was the right decision, even with everything that went wrong? Only because of where we ended up. Yeah, I was gonna say I, put all the bad shit aside. I, I think I, for, I think for what it was at the time, it was cruel. And it was greedy, and it was incredibly stupid. It could have been done Some, better. Yeah, somehow they salvaged it. Don't ask me how. <laughs> Again, not having played fantasy, but being, you know, as an outsider, able to look back, I look at it going, it, something needed to change. You really needed, I don't know if that was the right way to do it, but you needed a change. And so that's so I've always kind of defend. Like I don't like a lot of this stuff, and I get why people are mad. But I'm an outsider. Like no way, guys. You, it was, it was a, it had to be cleaned out. Let me let me tell you a scary fact. As 40k fans, the scariest thing about Warhammer Fantasy: The End Times was because it initially did well. A lot of people were buying it because they wanted to know what was happening, and they were they were excited that the setting was actually moving. The Games Workshop at the time only cared about making money, and I have spoken with individuals from those days at games workshop and the thing was they were working on and designing an end times for 40k i've heard oh it's funny because i know that i've watched uh i know that luton put out a video addressing concerns about whether or not games workshop would do that i mean this was only like three or four years ago that video came out maybe even less but i know that in at least that now he was like yeah it's extremely unlikely because of the direction games workshop was going with it but i'm not surprised that at the time it was something they were considering yeah the and rumblings it... were there i remember because when i got into the hobby was when people were like is there going to be an end times and a lot of people going maybe there should be I mean, they fucked up once. They can't fuck up twice. Yeah, and there's still people in the hobby. It's like when it you look at it is interesting when you look at 40k. Like, oh, we could just retcon and add new stuff. <laughs> and look, yeah. we we fixed the problem. Yeah, I was about to say it's interesting when you look at the how the lore moves in because again, I don't know the lore too well for fantasy and anything other than what I'm learning from you, Sotek. But with 40k, I know that like the speed at which lore and the timeline has changed has actually increased ever since basically the introduction of Guillemin and now like stuff is quote unquote happening within the setting, but it still doesn't feel like anything that's coming to like an end end, like what we've described in the, the end times here. So yeah, no, well like dude, age of Sigmar has a full moving narrative. It's fucking awesome. Like since, since first edition to right now, I think about 200 ish years have passed. And it, it's like we're in the middle of a massive narrative event right now called the Broken Realms, and it's 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 a fucking roller coaster ride. It's literally like reading a comic book. 
Like you know, there things are gods. They just ignore, and I'm jealous. Yeah, well, there's you know like what? literally gods punching each other in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That sounds like an awesome and positive place. I think to uh, to wrap uh, on our on our conversation on the on the end times. It may have been a extremely rocky, greedy, ill-conceived road, but what we have today is actually quite good, and let's all be happy with it. It was worth so, it. It, it, so was, so it, was, it was worth it. Yeah, so Sotek, it's at this point that we we get the the special box for you to stand on, where you can plug anything you want to plug for you know for coming on and talking with us. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, just check out my YouTube channel if you haven't already, or maybe follow me on Twitch. Uh, you can find me at Loremaster Sotek on either of those platforms or Twitter. I also do way too much tweeting for my own sanity. But uh, <laughs> if you're interested in learning about anything relating to Warhammer Fantasy or Age of Sigmar. Uh, that's a good place to come. Don't don't come to me with 40k stuff. I cannot help you. <laughs> All right. Well, then Ulrich, take us out. All right. Well, first, thanks to you to Sotek for coming on and talking about a very, you know, non-divisive topic that I'm sure you greeted <laughs> welcomely and reasonably. And Thank you all for listening. We really, you know, we know you guys like these longer lore episodes. We like doing them. And hey, do us a favor, share it with someone else. And whatever platform you're currently listening to this on, well, thanks. And that platform, whether it be SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, if one of those other ones, it would be more convenient for you and you didn't know, well, now you do. And if there's another platform that would be even more convenient for you that we're not on, tell us what it is and we'll look into it. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Until next time, may the dice roll in your favor.